Hi everyone, and a really warm welcome to the Learning Journeys podcast from Lacuna Learning. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing, and we just hope you're keeping really well just now. Today, and in what is the season two closer, we are joined by British canoeing podium slalom coach, and I'm delighted to say my good friend and colleague, Craig Morris. He is a pretty well-known figure within the coaching community, both online and in person. So many of you at home will have come across him one way or another. Uh, if you haven't, you've, you've been missing out on, on some real gold. He is a very humble character, so he won't appreciate me telling you about his credentials and achievements, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's what we do on a podcast. He is a hugely experienced high-performance coach. Uniquely, Craig has coached right across the pathway from those taking their first strokes in boats to multiple European and world medalists, including three Olympians and an Olympic medalist in the first appearance of the Women's C1 event in Tokyo earlier this year. I first met Craig at GB Selections in 2018, although he maintains he can't remember our meeting, uh, which I don't know who that says more about, but probably it's not very good for me. He is humble, self-critical, collaborative, hugely creative and pushing boundaries. I just can't wait to get into this conversation. So thank you so much for your time, Craig. Thanks for inviting me, Doug. Given Craig's creativity, this episode is also a bit of an experiment in that the last episode was with the incredible Kimberly Woods, who is one of Craig's athletes. So the idea is to do a bit of a two sides of the coin, double hitter type podcast episode. So we'll just see how that goes. I guess out of the conversation with Kim from the athlete's perspective, I had loads of questions that I wanted to ask her coach um, and just hear it from both sides. So I hope that it'll kind of feel like a nice two-parter, but we'll, we'll just see how we go. Okay, Mr. Morris, warm-up question. If you could go on an adventure anywhere in the world, who would you go with? What would you do? I would, Doug, take myself to the Trans-Himalayan Highway. It's a, a rich part of the world. I have a love for mountains. I have a love for Asia. And the length of that expedition is, um, yeah, really inspirational to me. And I hope to do it at one time in my life. And if I may, I would like to transcend this lifetime and take my late grandfather with me to spend 18 months or beyond um, with him um, from a position in my life now where I feel I could connect and correspond with him with much more richness than I did as a teenager when he passed would be really fruitful for me. And yeah, I sense he was a, a thoroughly lovely chap and I have a lot of fond memories of him. So it would be nice to reconnect with him in a space and, and, and time where I could do that without any cares in the world, but for that. What a beautiful answer. And obviously people will listen to this when it's not Christmas, but it is just before Christmas. And I kind of love that. And I love that idea that there's people that, you know, you meet when you're younger and you sort of wish that you could ask the questions you would ask now back then. Um, but of course, that that's not how it goes. But yeah, I love that idea that you would take them on this amazing journey and you'd ask them these wonderful, rich questions that now you've got more life and context to draw upon. I think that's that's wonderful. Okay. I guess when I had this conversation or a similar conversation with, with Kim... I got this sense of these two lives that were inextricably linked in, in lots of different ways. But of course, you are unique individuals. And so I want to start with you. And we'll get to Kim in a minute. We'll get to her um, in the same way that, that she got, got to you later on in her journey. You are a humble character and you pretend that you didn't do sport at a very high level, which we, all, we both know is, is actually not strictly true. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a sense of like, where does sport start for you and, and where did that lead you? Well, sport is very much not inherent within within my immediate family. My parents have a distinct distaste for sport. I grew up, probably as any teenager does, rebelling against that by 
yeah, having a, a lust for everything sport, I think, probably with the exception of horse racing, and I don't know why particularly. In terms of canoeing in itself, um, it was very much um, a hate of mine for many years as I grew up. So I'm, I am a brother to Stuart, five years his junior, and he took up canoeing um, on an army open day. We used to go caravanning around the country basically every six weeks holidays, great adventures, love it. It's probably where my sense of adventure was, was born. And um, yeah, ever since he tried it, he loved it. As I now understand, my parents quite rightly didn't want to trek to two ends of the country in one weekend and would like to contain the children in one mission. So I was largely sort of dragged into canoeing. I took it up at the age of five on Dudley's finest canal network, but not very passionate about it, not really enjoying it. But because I started it young, I had an excellent role model to shadow, shadow in my brother in terms of I would just get on a river and follow him around largely. I became quite proficient at canoeing, I guess. Yes, but my heart lied in um, trying to become a world-class left-back with my local football team on a Sunday, which was uh, where my passions passions lay at the time. Uh, yet here I am many, many years later, much to my parents' surprise, I'm sure, with, with canoeing being an integral part of my life and a career path that's uh, led to my financial security as well. So isn't life strange? Oh, it made me smile. I love that answer of how, how it all came to be. Yeah, the sense of adventure. I've known you for quite a while and you do have this real sense of adventure and therefore you made me wonder about these these caravan holidays and so on. Dudley's finest canal network. I'd like that noted in the podcast, please, everybody. And I love that. Came quite proficient, but wanted to be a world-class left-back. And um, it's never too late, right? You can just take that up soon. Sporting journey, high points as an athlete. How would you reflect upon that now? Strong word, high. Doug, for that. High point for I would you. Describe my, <laughs> high point for me. I would describe myself as an enthusiastic paddler, Doug, rather than an athlete or, or a career, as I made the uh, mistake of labelling it the other day. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was once national under-14 champion, and that fact has reminded me, as it will be, all being well when I travel to my parents uh, in the next week. Um, by the shrine that exists still at the age of 39 on, on the wall in their hallway. I can picture it because I had a terrible skinhead haircut with the fringe left on. I had one of my middle teeth had fallen out for whatever reason at that age. And I'm about three foot high. So yeah, with the shield, the under 14 national champion. So, you know, in terms of competencies and forecasting my progression at that stage, I was in the box seat. But yes, it never materialized much beyond that, largely due to my own my own uptake and my own kind of passion and intentions within the sport of which I didn't really know what they are in hindsight until many years later. But yeah, I carried on paddling a little bit. I moved to Nottingham with my now wife and mother of my children. And yeah, she's very career driven. I was kind of, yeah, struggling to know what to do academically, but did a business degree whilst trying to train. Found it very difficult to motivate myself to get out of bed in the morning as she came in from nights at the end of her degree when she was practicing. So yeah, kind of petered out a little bit. I I got a little shoulder injury at 23 and I started to overlap with coaching, um, which is probably the next chapter that we may go into. So yeah, retired, if that is a word I could use. (laughs) Stopped paddling might be a better phrase um, at the age of 23. Yeah, no, listen, as a man who had uh, two separate retirements from sport, and I'm sure I'll have another one when I'm allowed to do sport again when my children are slightly older. I get it. That was a career termination or a pausing of sorts, right? 
I'm interested. Like, so we've got obviously like performance high points, and they are important, right? But I'm wondering, do you have any like really distinct memories of like like your happiest day of paddling, or your like most fulfilled moment as a paddler, or does that not really resonate? No, it does a few. I can remember the start. I don't know. It's in 1980. Would that be 1987 when I first went paddling on the Stourbridge Basin in the West Midlands. Uh, I don't know how familiar with Newell's model of constraints and its use in sports my father was, but let's say he was, because he used to have me on a bit of string, basically, attached to the uh, toggle at the front of the boat. And he basically put me in the boat, of which it was up to my armpits, those who canoed in the 80s. Yeah, there was no um, scaling of equipment in those days for young nippers. And he pushed me out, basically. Yeah, when I got too far or a little too adventurous within the boundaries of this basin, he would, he would, yeah, yeah, constrain me by pulling me back a little. So, yeah, fond memories of, of, of what was, would have been one of my first times. I can really vividly see my first race as a junior eight on Ballamill. Uh, and I can actually remember the course, which is very bizarre. So some fond memories of my first race. But largely, Doug, my richer memories of paddling reside in running grade four-ish alpine rivers with my brother and or colleagues, whether that's in the Alps themselves, or I was fortunate enough to safety kayak on the boat to Cozy in Nepal once um, with, with mountains left and right. And yeah, that that's my environment. So they would be my richer memories. They're often social occasions in beautiful environments, which is kind of why I enjoy paddling, I think, anyway. Now, people at home won't know Craig just gave me a huge smile when he talked about so grade four is for those people who don't, aren't paddlers like quite significant rapids like rapids that you would think about before you went paddling down them just got this real warm sense of those days out on the river and like smashing it out with your mates and like alps and so on just beautiful places to go so okay i've got this sense of the enthusiastic paddler i was laughing to myself my wife was once asked to describe my dancing when i was a student and she described it as enthusiastic which that was the, the feeling that I had. So I knew a love of paddling, but perhaps not a love of being an athlete is, is what I heard. Consider yourself lucky, Doug, because uh, my wife would describe my dancing as thoroughly embarrassing. So, Well, now that I'm slightly older, I think she would probably agree. But yeah, I mean, in Scotland, we do Kayleigh dancing so that men can dance because you just have to count to four most of the time. But anyway, we have digressed onto dancing. Where did, where did coaching start, I guess I'm interested in, and where did that lead you? Coaching found me, to be honest, Doug. In, in 2005, I was bumbling around after my degree, considering further education, postgraduate. We'd been traveling, my wife and I, in the back of an escort van for six weeks around Europe, which was kind of the cementing of our relationship, really. I think if you can survive six weeks in the back of an escort van, then for a woman who has no desire or no experience of camping or sloughing, it's, it's almost like a rite of passage, if I may be so bold to uh, suggest. So at that time, when I came back, considering my options, uh, a guy called Alan Edge, who's a prominent figure in canoe slalom over the years, lovely chap, it was the coach developer with what was the BCU, British Canoe Union at the time, and effectively kind of just noticed me wandering and said, do you want to do a bit of coaching, help you get through your rewards, etc." So very much it was like, as my mom often reminded me throughout the preceding 15 years, yeah, are you... I get that you're enjoying coaching, but it is still a hobby. So when will you get a career? And that was very much the intention at the time. You know, the pathway for coaching within the world or or specifically within the UK for canoe slalom was non-existent really at the time as a career choice. But getting into it at that time was definitely a, a fortunate and 
lucky step in that I guess it became a career pathway from there. And I was very fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time on many occasions to have what on paper looks like quite a very linear progression through coaching from beginner level to to the level that I'm fortunate enough to work now. I smiled at what your mum said, which is the when you're going to get you said a job, not a proper job. Um, my mother would definitely have said proper job. It's just a hobby, right? And even now working in sport, people are like, really? You, you work in sport? And yeah, I describe myself as a professional tracksuit wearer because that, <laughs> that ultimately is is what we do, but it's, it's brilliant. But yeah, I guess I hadn't really appreciated that. At one point, there wasn't this fairly well-defined, well-trodden path that people now tread. You know, you had to, I guess, carve carve your own way a little bit. Yeah, I'm just interested that like almost broken road, that like rough road that you took in, into coaching. What do you think that gave you that perhaps coaches coming through these days might not get so much of? I've thought about this a lot. I think I wasn't coached or I never would consider myself to ha- have had consistent or regular coaching as a, as a paddler. So my framework or, or intention or sorry, like, yeah, my model of paddling was very much from my experience in relationship to my brother and my own paddling. Therefore, when I got into coaching, I was often described as having a blank canvas, which has its, has its um, pros and also has its challenges as well in that, you know, I had to go and learn things. Yeah, I didn't really have a, a step up in any aspects of, of the coaching sort of complexity to understand where I should start. So it's rich in, in that every mistake was an excellent mistake and one with good intention. And I was fortunate enough to have a couple of people around me who were shrewd enough to give me the freedom to explore whilst operating with some boundaries to, to enable me to grow in certain areas and to guide my search space a little bit. But I think the richest experience really was that I, I didn't know what I didn't know and therefore exploring and being creative was, was what I had to do because I didn't have a clue what coaching was. And and by the way, for the preceding 10 years, I probably still didn't have a clue what coaching was, which is quite amusing and yeah, slightly uneasy at the same time. So yeah, really blank canvas. And we are given a lot of freedom in our sport to coach how we want to coach, I think, which we might touch on later, which comes with rich invitations, but also can be challenging at times because you can feel quite alone in your practice. And it's not that big a sport that you can really connect with companions for learning and safe spaces it's more so now than it was as a young 23 year old i stepped into this this scary world of coaching it's totally fascinating i suppose now with lottery funding and everything else particularly in the uk it feels like a a really robust mature system but of course it's actually relatively recent that that was the case and we had you know performance programs and pathways and all this kind of stuff you made me think about my own work as a coach developer and just now an increasingly recognised thing. But when I started out, you were just sort of figuring out as you went, and I'm, I'm still doing that a bit now. And then people say, yeah, you know, there's like a recognised way of doing that. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, yeah. Even just things like when I first worked with a coach in a mountain environment, I was like, how am I going to mic them up? It's like minus 12 and stuff. And I had like this massive set of radios and I managed to like duct tape them up so it was on like constant transmit so I could hear the coach and that, and that worked all right actually it wasn't I would now do it in a much more efficient way but at, at the time we didn't know right with this blank like you said this blank canvas and so that beautiful term you used there which I love which was every mistake was an excellent mistake and I think sometimes we go oh I really made a mess of that and we kind of 
think of that in quite a negative way, but actually what you're saying is actually there were, there were excellent mistakes because they, they led us to be the people we are. So that when we had athletes that were, that were ready to be developed and ready to be worked with, we were in a really good place to work with them. Which I suppose allows me to segue a little bit into the wonderful Kimberly Woods. She, she told me I had to write her name down as Kimberly, but she doesn't mind being referred to as Kim. So um, <laughs> I'm just giving giving her some respect there. Could you tell me, like, because I've got this parallel journey of you as this, like, sort of budget and scarper coach to begin with, becoming this increasingly professionalised, sophisticated coach in the way you thought about w- what you do. And Kim, who had this journey, this, uh, I get this, I got this sense of this precociously talented athlete who came, like, bursting into performance programmes. Can you remember like, her first day? Can you remember her arriving in your group and, and what that was like? Yeah, it's been a rich journey with that young lady, and you're right, she's fabulous. And a, a lot of my progression as a coach, I owe to the, the fortune of having worked with the people, fabulous people that I have worked with and do work with. Every one of them has contributed richly, and, and she would play a big part in that. So I picked up Kimble, I'm trying to remember now, it's about, I think the winter of 2011 was the first time we worked together. And you're right, she was already an established junior team paddler, punching in finals. This, this short, unassuming little girl on the river who had a really rich, quite feisty, competitive personality. I hadn't really had the fortune to, to know at that point in time. We were operating under a class, class system at the time, and by that I mean um, class and gender. So we had women's coaches in one discipline, men's coaches in another, and I was the women's coach at the time. So you kind of had a line of sight on those coming through as to who might come in into your environment and who who hopefully would in, invite you on their journey of, of support to work with them and Kimberly was one which was really exciting for me because you know she she'd been paddling a very long time even at that age um, when she came in at, at about 16 17 I think to work with myself yeah had had white water skills that far superseded anything I'd ever managed to get to get done in my own paddling so it was quite exciting opportunity um and at those times, she would yeah travel up with her grandparents from rugby like once a week to Nottingham to stay over in the caravan and then to do day and a half, two days around her schooling. So a very different environment to obviously seeing her twice a day, every day now. And yeah, really a nice sort of family kind of wanting and, and trying my best to be invited into the family setup, really, to, to understand who she was at that time and work together, yeah, to to get to where we've got now through Lots of ups and downs and, and everything in between. That's really interesting. But before I dive more into Kim, I've got to ask you a question that just immediately came to me. Uh, I was reminded of something that uh, a colleague of mine said to me years ago, um, Derek O'Reardon, who, who you, you probably know quite well. Derek said one of the most significant things that happened in his coaching journey for the better was that for the first time he, he coached uh, a women's team, coached a women's national team. And he said that fundamentally changed the way he he thought about his coaching that, that up to that point he he was unbelievably technically and tactically knowledgeable and he thought that would be enough and then he went to work with these elite women and suddenly they didn't care how technically and tactically knowledgeable he was that they, they wanted him to collaborate and work with them and he worked he did a, did a great job so he talked about that journey i'm interested i guess when you became lead women's coach or whatever it was called at that at that time i'm wondering was it similar for you how, how did that shape the way you thought about your coaching yeah, I, I kind of saw coaching very simply then. 
and I see it very, very different now. So I remember feeling coerced into a philosophy through various coach development programs or, or just because everyone else had one and I should get one. It was, And it's still talked about now, and I, I approach it with caution, really, because I was kind of very disingenuous in in arriving at my first coaching philosophies in that they were very much to tick off an academic exercise or feeling like others wanted me to have one, therefore I should have one without being really attached to the purpose or why I coach the way I coach. Uh, so I wasn't ready for that at the time. Uh, when I took on the women's role, come about turn, it's interesting you mentioned Derek's statement there. I, I would probably have spoke very similar some time ago in that I've spoken with Sophia Jowett at length around this is that what are the differences of coaching across the gender genders? And I actually think it boils down to individuality and not stereotypes across gender of course there are some you know biological differences etc that need to be to be part of your coaching practice to understand and connect and engage with yet i should preface with i've worked predominantly with females and only a few few males over the years uh, i do work with with one male full time now and i think it's just very individuals i have i have worked with males who wouldn't fit what some might conceive to be the stereotype of, of a male, i.e. bish bash bosh, tell me what to do. They, for example, Adam, who I work with now, um, wants me to be a friend above a coach and wants to go on a journey together. Um, so that might not be everyone's stereotype of, of working with male athletes. And conversely, I've had very different experiences with different female athletes as well. So yeah, I've changed a little bit. I once, I once said I was going to write a book on how to coach um, female athletes, which was extremely arrogant and extremely naive. I'm so glad I didn't put pen to paper. I mean, hopefully no one would have published it anyway. Yeah, I think it's all about individuality and connecting with people where they're at in their own individual context. And gender is just one small part of that. Yeah, interesting. I thought you might say that, but actually the part I was most interested in was something you said at the start about coaching philosophy and you talked about it it wasn't attached to your purpose it was this this sort of statement of stuff I guess and things that sound good on a presentation or something and, and there's still a bit of that going on in the system I think but yeah I love that idea of just making sure it's attached to your purpose well why are we here and why are we doing what what we're doing and, and that being perhaps more important okay as people will know who listened to the first podcast or the last podcast this precocious wonderful tough character with amazing whitewater skills had this incredible trajectory through the sport then uh, went and played American football injured herself and then just talking about purpose very much lost I guess her purpose as a person as an athlete she couldn't do what she was doing and really 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 struggled um, which led to some some pretty significant mental health struggles with great affection and deep respect she tells the story of uh, you sitting down with her and saying, well, we've noticed we've noticed some marks on, on your arms and on your body. Uh, and it was you that, that led that. I'm just wondering if you're able to and willing to, if you're happy to talk about that conversation from your point of view, I guess, how did that come to be? And, and what, are, what are your reflections on that now? Yeah, sure, Doug. Kim and I are happy to talk about this because in, in leaving ourselves openly vulnerable, if it helps one person or one coach or one, one individual struggling with mental health, then I think it's worth the stretch from us. So happy to do that as Kim has role modelled brilliantly on your previous session. Yeah, so I mean, having known her for some time, and that, that was obviously an important aspect of it, it was clear that behaviour change was was happening. 
uh, I was mindful of the challenges that were happening around her. This is a young lady who had struggled in school, struggled in academically, didn't have a great passion or or she believed she didn't have great skill in that area. Therefore, it placed quite a lot of her attachment to her success as a person, to her canoeing. Therefore, when canoeing got difficult through times, you know, we were always attuned to the fact that that could present some challenges to her general well-being, as it did through that time. And yeah, a combination of, I guess, eyes open, ears open, sensing, listening, hearing, connecting with others around the space of those who were close to her. I, yeah, I, I noticed that an intervention probably needed to happen. And in answer to your question, as quite a young coach as I still was then, uh, my maths isn't very good, so I can't figure out, but I would have been yeah, just around 30, I guess. I consider myself to be young at 30 now. Um, <laughs> I had wonderful access to an excellent psychologist and a network with doctors as well. Uh, and they did a wonderful job, I think, of giving me the support and confidence to have that conversation, to make it feel like I was the right person to have that conversation. Because, you know, as although I was very close to Kim and a been, been connected to her for a long time and she was living full-time I think in London if I get my years correct at the time as well away from family I probably wasn't sure I was the right person to have that conversation still yet with the support of, of those in the background yeah I, I made the approach I can remember it very vividly and I think it was as she said like it was a weight off shoulders for both it was very emotional very difficult conversation to have I remember the small details of of where where I would have it why I would have it there, um, what to try and invite an open, honest um, and safe space for her to converse, you know, it, it, down to the finest detail of should she be facing a wall or an open room where others could enter, those sort of things. I can remember it really vividly. And yeah, to her credit, something she's found very difficult to that point of talking about emotions and connecting with emotions and making sense of them. And she did that really richly in that conversation and invited me into, I guess, correspondence thereafter with her and enabled me to invite a further connection beyond my skill set to others which she brave enough to take talks in retrospect or in hindsight now very fondly of taking that leap to do that thanks for sharing yeah kim was really clear with me that exactly as you said there if this helps one person to to get some help then it's worth heartache of sharing it because it is it's painful it's hard it's hard to hear right but yeah I loved what you said there eyes open ears open sensing listening paying attention noticing noticing when things change right really important what I find most fascinating about this story having had a bit of training in psych is that even though you have these incredible practitioners all around you the um the decision was that the best person out there to have that conversation wasn't the highly qualified doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists, but the coach, the guy who had worked it out as he'd gone along, but the person that she probably trusted the most and the person that it came from. And so rather than them heavy-handed coming in with an intervention, they did actually the opposite, was they armed the coach with the skills to step in and have that conversation, perhaps in a more structured, meaningful way than you might have done if you hadn't had that support. And that to me is... Um, incredible actually um, and it says a lot about kind of the interdisciplinary nature of, of the way you certainly like to work I, I just yeah I th- thought it was incredible to, to hear that from you um, I love that statement I wasn't sure I was the right person to have that conversation 
uh, yeah, I've definitely been there times in, in my my life and in my career as well. When you wonder, maybe there's not must be somebody else more qualified and more competent than me, right? It must be anybody, anyone available. And it turns out sometimes <laughs> you are you are the right person at that time. So you reached out, you did it in the best way you possibly could. I, don't, I was going to say the right way, but I don't think there is a right way here. And she got some help from people who really could help her. What was her, I guess, her journey back into training and sport and so on after she had some treatment like from, from, a, from a coaching point of view? Yeah, I guess the, the collaborative approach that we had, and obviously uh, coaches listening on this call might, might have experienced themselves, the, the line of connection with external help in this area, be it, you know, clinical support, is not as embedded as it might be if it's um, sports psychology, for example, or chatting with a physio around an injury. So, you know, and, and, and that's a decision the medical team take as to whether, I guess, referrals around mental health are dealt with internally or externally based on a case-by-case basis. So there wasn't a lot of information in the backflow. Largely, my positioning in that entangled web was was connection through the psych who had connection to the doc who had connection to the external practitioner what we did with kim was i mean firstly listen to what she wanted and needed rather than impose or or prescribe a return to paddling so actually as it was she didn't stop training at all through that period as i recall it because i mean let's picture it here so we've got a girl who's strongly attached to her identity through a sport but yeah is struggling through various aspects um, with mental health related to different things. So the the decision from hearing her really was was to not take the sport away because that could potentially provide more of a trigger to some of the, the, the problems. But to maybe try and reframe how she how she was exploring or or her intentionality around what it was she wanted to experience when she came into the sporting environment and what was our roles in that and how could we help that. So maybe just shifting the narrative of why she was in the environment through each time and how that would help her get to a better place of, of health and well-being. So that that's as I largely recall it, really working with her throughout. And obviously she's just coming out of her adolescence at the time as well, so really difficult journey for her to take a lead on, but we kind of really try and place the person at the centre of the interaction. And if they're not in a position to lead, then we walk side by side hand in hand effectively through some of these difficult challenges and, and that being one and as you've said a very transdisciplinary approach as I like to call it across the practitioners in that everybody has the permission if Kim invites them in to that circle that they can challenge and support and give observations with Kim to help us through what was a very difficult time. Thanks Greg you've um made me consider this idea of person-centeredness or athlete-centeredness. People talk about, oh, I'm very athlete-centered. I always feel like it can be a bit of a hollow or a bit of a token statement. But if anybody listening at home is ever looking for a good example of what athlete-centered might look like, I'm going to point them in the direction of what you just shared there in the last couple of minutes, because it was a wonderful example of placing them at the center and support around them. You've also made me consider very carefully the fact that not only was that pretty effectively handled and she was well supported given a really good return to sport it also seemed to and certainly from the conversation with Kim almost uh, strengthen or bolster your relationship uh, which meant that when she was then a couple of years down the line and, and doing a bit better and wanting to qualify for the, the Tokyo Games she tells the story that going into that Tokyo qualification season as it was intended to be before Covid arrived 
you guys had a bit of a difficult conversation and she described it as basically we both needed to stop butting heads so much. And she talked about this this conversation where you had this real honesty, candor about where we were at, what we were doing and how we were going to work together. I wonder if you could off- offer your side of the story on that conversation. Yeah, I can. I'm smiling because, um, yeah, her confidence and strength of character to challenge me on my coaching practice or our interaction has, has been a significant part of my development as a coach. And I'm very thankful that she was brave and bold enough. And hopefully I played some small part in creating an environment where the coach can be challenged and the practices can be challenged. And, and that is, I guess, epitomizing, hopefully, a person-centered approach. Yeah, she she quite rightly pushed back hard on some on her struggles with her experience of practice or racing and how my interactions with her were not augmenting her experience of that, but actually um, were, were being a limiting factor or, as I would describe it, providing additional sources of, of information that weren't allowing her to authentically interact with the environment of the race. An example being that yeah, I'd spent many years kind of deconstructing technique into its parts and trying to put, a, put them back together and had a very artistic model. Yes, you could angle creativity into that, but there wasn't much room for creativity at the time. It was an artistic model of how canoe slalom should look as an efficient swan-like performance, you know, elegant on the top, um, legs flapping hard underneath, under the surface of the water. And what that led to, and she would have been amongst others to feedback to me on this, was that effectively they were navigating gates with with a model of performance that I was trying to bestow upon them in their in their heads. So a particular stroke, they were on significant runs. I, I often cite Kim as feeding back after an under-23 final uh, world championship, saying when we're watching the video, oh, I knew you'd hate that stroke. I thought when I went around the go- gate, Craig's going to hate that stroke. And that was quite a jolt moment for me. Not necessarily in the moment, because I was like, yeah, you're right, I did. That was nice. It satisfied my ego. Um, but over time, I came to realize that I was adding in non-specifying or non-useful information um, from which to act in a very dynamic environment, which is going to slalom. And things had to change. So our good intentions of trying to get more consistency with this precocious young lady um, who had high levels of skill and good physicality had led to us being inauthentic or stripping back the things she was good at and the things she had largely created on her own interactions with environments or through previous coaches. So we were trying to yeah, conform her into a model of performance that was very much not individualized and not understanding of all the interacting factors that can contribute to that at any one time. And she was bold enough to speak out on that. And I look back on that now, as I've said before, is like well-intentioned. And I think that's important for coaches to hear because that was a mistake. In hindsight, it was a mistake to do that. It was a well-intentioned collaborative project that was probably ill-informed in hindsight from what I've come to know now. But we don't know what we don't know at certain moments. And therefore, as long as you walk out together, you give permissions to be challenged on how things are going. And I remember it came to a head at a World Cup in Spain in the year before Olympic selection um, between myself, Kimberly, and the psychologist. And, and that, yeah, shifted the narrative into 2019. I would say the way we went about co-designing practice and racing experiences into that Olympic selection, very different as a result, and happened to coincide probably in the winter of 17 into 18 with what I, what I quoted today as being a pedagogical awakening for myself in terms of the fact 
the way we were creating practice was not congruent with the demands of the event. Yeah, thanks, Craig. I would encourage everyone <clears throat> to listen back to those last couple of minutes. Uh, it's not often you hear. Uh, and he wouldn't like me saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Someone towards the top end of his profession, critically looking through. And this this wasn't like 20 years ago. This was a couple of years ago in, in like terms. This was just pre-Tokyo. And saying, oh, actually, I thought I had it. And it turns out I didn't quite have it. I needed to do a bit more work. And actually, I needed to hear my athletes because they occasionally, and I'm sorry to say this, coaches are wrong and the athletes are right. And we don't tell them that very often, but, but it's it's most definitely true. It was wonderful, just wonderful to hear that. So, so thank you very much. As Kim tells the story now, we eventually went to Tokyo. There was some stuff in the middle we won't talk about. Uh, she talks about feeling disappointed by her performance in, in Tokyo and, and the support, not just of you, but of the environment you had created amongst the whole group and the way that they supported her and they kind of wrapped her arms around her. And she says... Uh, she talked about it said they said you're still loved that was how it made her feel which was this, this amazing thing to create a new environment but I actually want to fast forward as our last part of this conversation which has just been amazing to the world championships and you ended up in a horrific car accident and then Kim decided that she was going to try and paddle and she talks about this uh, this experience and she went on to medal and it was just unbelievable as probably the highlight or the proudest moment of her career and I would just love to hear your side of the story and your perspectives on that those incidents and stuff that happened uh yeah and what what sense do you make of that as a coach well as you probably predict I'm going to tell a little story here and pad it out a little bit so my colleague Gareth Wilson talks really fondly about time in Bratislava we basically had an hour commute. So we were in a bio bubble at the Olympic Centre in Bratislava, and we had an hour commute to the venue and back. Various bubbles, various different groups on cars, etc. So what, we'd been in lockdown for pretty much about two years by then. And Gareth speaks really fondly, and this is probably a good reflection of coaches. Some of the richest conversations we'd had in those two years were when we were locked in a car together for an hour's drive, uh, either as a group or one-to-one. And Kim and I had that experience um, We'd traveled to the venue twice that day. We'd gone back to do the new discipline, Extreme Slalom. We'd had one of the best days. We'd kind of debriefed Tokyo a little bit, heart to heart. For, yeah, we'd, we'd done a good debrief just before we'd left, and we were kind of just, yeah, just closing that chapter and opening a new one and talking about the future. And A really rich day. And anyway, on the way home, yeah, we got T-boned hard um, by a drink driver, unfortunately. Thankfully, Kimberly didn't see it coming as it hit her car door pretty fast, you know, 70 clicks an hour, both cars. And uh, we got knocked into a cornfield um, and hobbled out together. Yeah, so it was one of those kind of moments. Uh, yeah, I don't wish it upon anyone. I've had a couple now where you kind of, you realize your helplessness in life when you just feel out your peripheral vision, something moving towards you that's pretty hard and has a lot of weight behind it. So yeah, that took us out hard. We hobbled anyway. Long story short, we were both glad to be alive we we talked on the curbside in tears having a little hug and um, probably somewhat breaking pro- protocol of covid at that time as we might forgive ourselves uh, about what it meant you know to be there at that point and from whatever unfilled from there then that's the main thing and yeah to her credit she took that into perspective and she was amazing on that camp in terms of her interactions with herself with her team and with her colleagues in terms of how she took up. And yeah, she got to racing incredibly five days later as she talked about wanting to front up and, and be an integral part of Fiona Penny's last race as a, 
uh, World Championships and they came home with gold in the team event. She then went and won heats in the C1, which I don't know how she managed to kneel on that ankle because it was pretty swollen at the time. It's pretty horrible stuff. And it's still a problem now. She actually still still can't do C1, unfortunately, at the moment. But yeah, and then in her individual race, I think some, some adversities in life just give you perspective, eh? And I think obviously the mental health has been won throughout her, her chapter in Canoe um, to date. But that crash was definitely another that unleashed the authentic free Kim that we saw as a youngster that, yeah, admittedly some of my coaching practice had maybe dulled down and dampened a little bit. And in in the lead through Tokyo, it definitely unleashed again. And uh, she found it with, with such richness. And yeah, it was an emotional one, that one. I was pretty much, I didn't watch any of the runs in Bratislava. I was just in the team tent watching the dots, as anyone in Canoe Slalom will know. So, uh, and then got it over the radio where she'd finished and stuff. I managed to yeah, trundle my way down there to enjoy enjoy some, some time with her and celebrate Fiona's last race. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, I was really keen to hear it from your point of view. Yeah, where well, it's just uh, because it sort of felt like when Kim talked about the, the Tokyo experience, which she, you know, eventually did unpack and debriefed and stuff, it kind of it felt really low. And then we had this conversation about the World Championships, and it just felt like a like a really positive place to to lead the podcast that day. And it, it feels like a good a good pausing point for us. We need to get you back on. I think there's lots of questions I now want to ask you, um, but but we just don't have the time. Ah, uh, wow. Where do I start? The caravan holidays and Dudley's finest canal network is where I think we should we should start. Yeah, just this real that sense of adventure and, and getting into it. The enthusiastic enthusiastic athlete. Um, we talked about our dancing, which we'll we'll definitely move on from. Uh, you were a national under fourteen champion. I just want that on the podcast to be super clear, mostly for Craig's mum because she would be pleased to hear that we're telling the world he was actually a very good paddler. He's just very humble. The, the escort van for six weeks um, with with your wife and one of your children now. Yeah, right. I've, I've done not that journey, but a similar one. And it yeah, if you're going to be with together for a long time, that's the sort of thing you need to do to prove that it's, it's going to work. The hobby that became a proper job. Yeah, I just, I love that. But I also love then that because you had such a blank canvas, it allowed you to, to maybe explore things in a different way. And this idea of excellent mistakes, I think is um, really rich. You said a little number of times in this conversation, I didn't know what I didn't know and I don't know what I don't know. And I just, it's lovely to hear someone so far on in their career who's so sophisticated in their coaching, still talking about that. The rich journey with that young lady that we've talked about a lot today and just that, that, that journey. And you talked about how significant she has been in development as a coach as much as you've been significant obviously in her development as an athlete and then the way you went around that incredibly difficult conversation around self-harming and and the support that you got and and the way you very much placed her at the center of that which which was very congruent with who you are as a coach and and what you believed and anybody listening at home if you feel like you can't have those conversations it's much better to have it than wish you'd had it I think that would be the message to to go with yeah and just finishing on that thing you said at the the end there some adversities in life just give you perspective and I think we unleashed the authentic free Kim which came from a very 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 skillful coach. Folks you need to keep an eye on Craig. We haven't had a chance to chat about today. Go to his Twitter profile and look at his work with the challenge cards. This is for another day entirely a whole other conversation but you need need to check it out you've done some incredible work there so um, do that. Craig people are going to want to chat to you, going to want to pick your brains on all sorts of things in that journey where can they keep a tab on what you're up to and ask you questions? 
two main areas, Doug, as you've touched on, yeah, I'm reasonably uh, lively on Twitter, at MorrisCraig underscore, and I'm on LinkedIn at Craig Morris. Those are probably the best two platforms to reach out. There you go, folks. I will put a whole bunch of links in the podcast description uh, to Craig and all the things that, that he's up to. If you're ever interested in a real good co- coaching conversation, he's always up for it. Uh, he's busy. He's super busy. But he's, if you, he thinks you might offer something interesting, he might learn from you and vice versa, then he's, all, he's always open. He's very accessible. It's just great. Craig and I haven't known each other that long, but I consider him someone that I hold in, in hugely high regard and I hugely respect. So it's people always say, don't meet your heroes or don't have them on your podcast, but I completely disagree. It's been a real joy. So Craig, thank you so much. Everyone, Please subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. Um, And in the meantime, everybody, please stay safe. 